Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Helper. Are you in search for the perfect health insurance? Well, look no farther because they are the ultimate platform that revolutionizes the way that you find, enroll, and manage your health coverage. HealthBird offers an innovative solution that is tailored just for you. They have a lightning fast search engine that you can effortlessly compare health insurance quotes in milliseconds. There's no more tedious hours of browsing endless websites or spending hours on the phone with insurance agents. They offer a user-friendly app available on iOS and Android, which puts the power of managing your health insurance right at your fingertips. So again, you know, don't let the complexity of health insurance overwhelm you. Join Helper community and experience a seamless, intuitive platform that puts you in control. So get a quote today at healthbird.com forward slash dealmakers. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today, very exciting founder that we have joining us. We're going to be talking about some really interesting stuff, especially, you know, like with all this stuff that is revolving around climate change. I think it's quite timely, this conversation. And his journey as an entrepreneur, building, scaling, financing, you know, all the good stuff that we like to hear is quite inspiring. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Tony Pound. Welcome to the show. Hi, it's great to be here. So originally born in Taiwan. Tony, give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Life was decent. I was the son of a Taiwan Navy officer. And so that's the best trade. Your parents join the Navy, you get to see the world. So I grew up actually in Taiwan, Scotland, and Korea. And then at age 18, I came to the U.S. to go to college. I mean, obviously, Stanford, you know, out of all places, you know, quite the place, you know, full of innovation. Uh, and you studied physics. Why physics? <laughs> Tech nerd by, I think, by my DNA. I was always interested in the natural world, was the governing laws of the universe and how things worked. And I think you can get into a tech, both the understanding the universe from physics, but also understanding how most things in the world work, right? It's whether it's the chips in your computer to the machines that power human civilization. Uh, it's physics. And, you know, in your case, you know, you did the undergrad in Stanford in physics, the PhD in physics at Harvard. So, I mean, you've been on, on the biggest hey, universities, you know, that one can think of. Now, in your case, you know, one of the things that you did is after, you know, graduating, you went at it um, in the basically as a professional and you did Goldman Sachs. So I guess what was that transition, you know, from you know, doing more like the finance, you know, that kind of work to then all of a sudden, you know, landing at a Bill Gates Foundation, you know, type of thing. I mean, it's a, it's such like a crazy 180, no? So uh, walk us through what happened there. Yeah, so the Goldman experience is interesting in the sense that, so I never intended to go to finance or stay in finance, but in college, my dad caught cancer and died. So I was, I needed to make money very quickly to support the family. I paid my sister's tuition uh, and basically quits when she graduated. But it was a very good experience for me in retrospect, 
because money moves the world. You have to understand how the numbers work and what drives businesses and human behavior. And I got to learn a lot of finance in a very short interval because out of sheer bad luck, I joined randomly Goldman's mortgage department during the great financial crisis. So I had to do things like the big short and running the Fed stress test when I was like 22 years old. But the, the plan was always to go back to physics. And in fact, I'd say the more unusual thing of ending up in a startup was that you, you do a physics PhD because you think at some point you want to make your impact by developing technology and science in a university. Uh, it was in the mid middle of my graduate studies during the PhD, I realized that academia might be too slow for me. And that's when I joined an incubator out in Seattle called the Invention Science Fund, uh, where it was essentially a deep tech incubator that wanted to make breakthrough technologies that can help change the world. And it was in the model of spinning out startup companies. So I joined forces with them. And then through that, met Bill Gates, who became my founding investor. So, so, so how was that thing, you know, like of uh, joining an incubator program? I mean, obviously you had, you had access or exposure to all of this because you went to Stanford and I'm sure that you had like yep. people that you know that went at it and, and started their own companies. Now, how was, how was this for you? Did you already have an, had an idea of the type of company that you wanted to start or was it like more being part of the incubator and that, you know, that's how you landed, you know, on the path that you're in right now with the business? I knew that I wanted to work on climate change going into the incubator. That uh, aligned with their energy and climate goals as well. But to be clear, this deep tech incubator did many different deep technologies, not just climate change. But I knew roughly that was the sector I wanted to tackle, but not the specific problem or technology. So there definitely was a learning experience and a search experience for the right problem uh, within the incubator. And I mean, you were throwing, you know, names of, of people that, that you were able to, to get to back you, you know, like right away, people like of the caliber, like Bill Gates. I mean, how did you manage to do that? I, I want to say, honestly, probably a bit of luck and probably just impressing the right people who knew the right people. Uh, it's, uh, uh, how would I put this? Yeah. While I was an incubator, I came up with a lot of ideas. As with any innovation, most of those ideas were pretty dumb, uh, which I eliminated myself. And then some ideas you do a search and you realize, okay, that's a great idea and someone else is already doing it. But uh, I think through that process of coming up with like a, a subset of ideas that was compelling enough that impressed some of the big dogs at the incubator that uh, they, they knew Bill Gates. And they basically at some point said, hey, Tony, like, we, we want you to do something. Please write this 80-page white paper and then and you know spend four hours and we're going to invite Bill here. Surprise! And go and see uh, if, uh, uh, how, how he feels about all this. And so that's what I did. A bit of a surprise uh, at, that, at that age. Uh, but again, I think it was just a combination of doing hard work and <laughs> impressing the right people who then unlock more people. What is it like to pitch Bill Gates? I mean, that's a, it doesn't get bigger than that. With my age now and more experience, I should have been terrified. I <laughs> wasn't really. It, it, it was terrible, actually, that, that day, in a sense. I also was, was down with a cold. So like, I was really worried about getting him sick because I was like, of course, right? It was like me, a few other people, and Bill sitting right next to the table. And uh, 
uh, and I was like sneezing. I have like tissue paper over, and I had like this four hour four hour discussion presentation to get through, uh, and like just talking and ideating at the same time. So it was a pretty uh, uh, interesting environment. I think I did not quite understand at that age of like how big the stakes were, so I just kind of did it. Uh, but yeah, it was, he is a genius. That that is it was sort of clear. And so at this point, like I've I've uh, had the fortune of uh, interacting with Bill for over a decade, and uh, it's you kind of understand why Microsoft became Microsoft. That's incredible. Yeah, no, I've, we I've had several people on the podcast that have had the opportunity of either uh, receiving an investment from Bill Gates or working with him, you know, at the Microsoft. And just the way that he's able to. From 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 what people have mentioned is the way that he's able to process information and how fast he's able to do that and to form an opinion uh, around it, you know, is is really remarkable. So I'm sure that that's something that you have been able to to experience. So now, now in your case, you know, you got started in with modern hydrogen. So I guess for the people that they are listening, what is the business model? How do you guys make money? So fundamentally, our company decarbonizes natural gas into clean hydrogen and does the at the point of use, meaning that we make the hydrogen immediately where the customer already is. And so the model really is about selling both the hydrogen and also selling the carbon that we've pulled out of the natural gas. So just going one layer deeper into the tech to explain a bit of the business, Natural gas is the biggest source, one of the biggest sources of energy in the world. To give you a sense of scale, uh, natural gas in the United States is just as big as coal plus nuclear plus hydro, hydroelectrical power, plus solar plus wind. All these different energy sources you hear all over and they're fighting each other out. All of them added together is as big as natural gas. So this is why uh, decarbonizing natural gas is important because obviously with that much use of natural gas, it's one of our biggest sources of CO2 emissions. But natural gas is chemically what is called CH4. It's one carbon atom for hydrogen atoms. And when you burn hydrogen, it's clean. It just produces clean water. So it's natural gas that's running through the country's pipes and energy systems it's already mostly clean. It's mostly clean hydrogen, but there's just one pesky carbon atom out there. So we essentially break uh, natural gas into its components, carbon and hydrogen, and we sell the hydrogen and we sell the carbon. We sell the hydrogen as energy so it gets burned and used, but it doesn't emit CO2 anymore. And then we sell the carbon actually as a material so it's not burned. It does not turn into CO2. It's, it's used as a useful material in the economy, and, and we sell that also for money as well. So that that's how the technology and business works. And and so far, I mean, how because obviously I'm sure that this has, you know, taken a little bit of money uh, to raise and and obviously you guys, you know, got started with the business, you know, back then, you know, around 2015, and since then you guys have done multiple rounds uh, prior to COVID and now in this macro environment. So how much have you guys raised to date? And what has been that experience of raising this money through these different rounds? We have raised $100 million across all the rounds. And the experience has been, I'll just say, interesting in that in deep tech climate companies that are trying to do 
breakthrough energy technologies that can change the course of human civilization. It's very unlike the Silicon Valley model of fundraising because you're spending many years in the lab, right? Like your initial milestones is proving technical points, technical performance, and getting key strategics to lean in and make investments, not necessarily because you're ready to go to scale or that the technology is mature, but because they know also if they make this long-term investment, if this tech works, it will change their industry. But then the metrics are completely unlike uh, traditional uh, traditional companies that you see spinning out of Silicon Valley, uh, Silicon Valley universities and being funded by traditional VCs, right? Because there it's about very quick. It, it takes no time relative to hardware to make your product and to iterate. So it's all about your it's all about your go to market strategy, your execution, uh, and how you compete. Whereas for us, it was like spending tens of millions of dollars hiring some of the smartest people on the planet building stuff in the lab and showing, hey, like there's this technical milestone that we're tracking. And if it can reach X, that's a level of validation de-risking to unlock new values and you go raise money off that. So it's a very different model. Yeah, no kidding. Now, now, how has it been to racing through those different cycles as well? Because I mean, the, the last round that you guys did, you know, like was this year, you know, and I'm sure that there was quite a difference on raising in this environment versus raising in like, 2021, when it was like everyone was raising money and money was everywhere. That's right. And uh, I think to the credit of the energy industry and also, frankly, what we're doing is pretty compelling. So it was not that hard to raise our round in uh, which closed March or April this year, which uh, I think everybody knows, right? High interest rate environment. Uh, every other traditional VC sector is getting hammered. But we, we had an up round. And I think that there's really two factors, right? One is just generally nothing to do with us, but energy and climate tech is doing well generally because it's a mega trend. And the energy sector is you'll you'll stop you'll stop buying your fancy video game or your you'll you'll unsubscribe from some of your SaaS subscriptions before you stop buying energy. So the energy sector generally is more resilient to economic cycles. But also, frankly, there are major legislations across the world. Like last year, the Inflation Reduction Act passed, which is essentially a climate bill. Everybody estimates this is at least a trillion dollar bill over the next 10 years in terms of government support for clean energy. And so that made the sector overall that we're in a lot more robust. And frankly, also our solution is super strategic for our sector. So it was actually not that hard to raise our most recent round. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson 
to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a Series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. So I guess uh, when when you were um, doing this capital races and, and educating investors, because I mean, obviously you guys are doing this in such an innovative way, you know, what was that, um, you know, ramp up, you know, uh, to, to really get people to understand the way that you guys were doing things and why it was so different from everyone else? It requires a lot of diligence, meetings, and of course, people visiting on site uh, with their technical experts. So it's actually a very fancy dance because you can think of our investors in three categories. Well, I'll put Bill Gates as his own category, just single visionary individual. And we work directly, uh, our investment is from his family office mm. uh, that he directs. The second group is clean tech VCs, who, of course, to be able to do clean tech, they have a lot of you know PhD level uh, industry experts and even professors on staff to help them do technical diligence. And last but not least, a huge part of our investors is strategics. So, for example, NextEra, which is the largest publicly traded utility in the United States, is one of our investors. National Grid, which is actually a rare multinational utility. They're both in Europe and the United States is also one of our investors. And of course, they have a lot of experience with tech, with energy equipment and the industry. And so the diligence process, in addition to vetting, it goes to really right, vetting both the technology. How does it work? Can it work? Is it differentiated? Are you protected by patents? But also with the projections of where it's going to evolve, does it have fundamental solid unit economics? that can actually provide energy that's cleaner and cheaper. And so it's is it's kind of interesting in a sense that no one's really looking at our uh, our sales or initial pipeline. Now that's important to get that validation. But frankly, the energy and clean tech experts kind of know that energy is such a big market that if you have something truly competitive, like it will get adoption. It's the it's the core product. How does it work? How well does it work? And the economics around that is that's more important. So it's kind of, I don't know, I feel sometimes flipped from software in the sense that the, the, the uh, making sure the core tech itself is fundamentally good on a good trajectory is more important. And in a sense that we can make that work, they'll trust us to be able to build a sales team or to work with them with their sales team and they'll be able to market it. Let's talk about here about the vision too, because I'm sure that, you know, this was a really big one with, with, with these investors to get them on board. If you were to go to sleep tonight, and you wake up in a world where the vision is fully realized. What does that world look like? So we would have reduced 10 gigatons of CO2 per year because we have to decarbonize the natural gas grid uh, across the globe. And to give you a sense of 10, 10 gigatons of CO2 per year, that is 20% of all man-made emissions. That's more emissions than most countries. Uh, that is as big as... That is twice as big 
as decarbonizing both the airline industry and the shipping industry. So if we decarbonize just distributed forms of natural gas, it's bigger than twice as big as shipping plus airlines combined. It's crazy. And in addition, uh, if we're successful, another interesting thing about our technology is that if we pair it with something called biogas, so think we have a lot of agricultural waste in the economy, right? And usually they're rotting and they emit a lot of gas as well. And that is a useful fuel. But if we use that gas and pull carbon out of it, it is equivalent to pulling CO2 out of the air and putting a carbon into the ground, into building materials. So it's actually repairing the atmosphere. It's it's reducing our the CO2 that we've already emitted in the atmosphere. This is one of the holy grails of climate change. It's also called negative emissions. And so in in if I wake up in my dream world, we have also done a massive amount of that. And actually, one of the few companies that have actually started repairing all the damage we've done to the biosphere. So when you guys started with the business, it was 2015. Yeah. I think that the talk around climate change, you know, has definitely accelerated since then. And and you got also consciousness. You know, people are more conscious around this problem. How do you think that that consciousness has helped you guys to uh, perhaps accelerate things and, and be able to realize where you want it to be? Just being honest, because I know there's a lot of entrepreneurs uh, on hearing this. Like, it was hard, man. The, when we founded a company, it was what was called the Climate Tech Winter. Uh, Obama, during the Obama years, there was some big government push, but it kind of failed. That was like in 2008, 2012, where there was a lot of climate tech investment, but it didn't work out. So the whole industry crashed generally. And so there were basically nobody, like nobody in Silicon Valley or investors looking to make investments in climate change. We were very lucky to get Bill Gates. He was one of the very few individuals that had a long-term view here. But like the first, actually the first few rounds were much harder. And, uh, but things started changing, I'd say in the last three years out of our seven year journey so far, where, I mean, frankly, I think climate change and its damaging impacts become worse and worse. And that kind of freaked people out. And finally, there was momentum to do something about it, right? Like the, the 2015 Paris Climate Accords, the first big climate accord with the whole world signing on, they, they had all these commitments that by 2050, you know, we need to reduce our CO2 to keep the temperature uh, increase not exceeding 1.5 Celsius. That was 2050. It's 2023, man. We have already hit 1.5 Celsius this year. And so I think this is sort of a sad thing, but like the, the fact that how bad how bad things have gone, gone on climate have finally mobilized companies and governments into action. And so in the past few years, not only have we seen phenomenal government support, the in the United States Inflation Reduction Act, you can probably argue the most generous support and subsidy is for clean hydrogen. So that's helped our business. But even before the subsidy, we're starting to get traction with companies because the companies sort of saw the, saw the lining, right? Like there's the big ESG movement and it's, there's some controversy around that, but the outcome is pretty clear. It became easier for companies to finance their green solution versus the fossil fuel solution. There's essentially a spread in the financing costs. And that has direct economic and dollars impact. So companies started to want to buy green and invest green. So in the last three years, things have become a lot more easy. And it's like a mega trend. You can just see this accelerating. I mean, probably for the people that that, that are listening to, I mean, obviously it's, it's, it's kind of alarming what's going on. And you are at the forefront of this. So, I mean, do you think we still have a shot of turning things around or not? 
because I'm trained as a scientist and try to give very accurate statements. I know entrepreneurs are supposed to be optimistic and I'll be like, you know, it depends on your bar. I, I think we'll, well, I think we're talking about, we're going to miss all the big climate goals as a civilization that we set, but uh, we've also mitigated the worst case scenario. So I think we're probably going to end up with like 2.5 Celsius or something like that. And a lot of people are going to suffer. It's going to be massively damaging, but we are fortunately due to all the efforts of, of folks like in like, you know the solar wind solar industry wind industry the new hydrogen industry electric cars uh like we have mitigated the armageddon scenario i'm very sure that like the we're, armageddon is not going to pa- pass now because of the momentum and the progress in the space so so going to be like a billion people suffering there'll be migrants pouring over borders a lot of bad stuff's going to happen but uh it's like we have prevented human extinction with the progress of clean tech I mean, do you think we, we came close? No, I, I think the, well, I mean, it's high science 2020, right? You have the exponential decrease in price of solar. Uh, I think I was a lot more nervous 10 years ago than now. No kidding. No kidding. So, so I can say now, you know, do for, for what you guys are doing and for the way that you have built a business, you know, how have you guys gone around, you know, for, for really putting the right people around you for modern hydrogen? I mean. How have you guys gone about recruiting? Like, what are what is typically the talent that you guys are seeking for for an initiative like this? I mean, obviously, you know, like for some of those uh, uh, startups, it's all about the engineering team. I mean, who are the people that you needed to get first? And then, how have you guys thought about building the team? You know, around the business. For us, it's engineers and scientists. At least for most of company history, every function is important. But since due to the nature of what we do, right, building breakthrough tech, think this is mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, material scientists, physicists. Uh, we have, well, I'm very proud of our team. We have some of the smartest people in the world. But I also say like that the soft factor is really important. I think uh, we have a pretty, pretty darn good company culture. It was quite intentional. It took like the first two years to get right, but uh, you need that magic mix of, and uh, this might be controversial, right? But typically, like, in brilliant people have a lot of quirks. And you have to find the right kind of quirks in the sense that we, we have, like, a no, no a-hole rule. And we don't like people who are entitled. And you really need to find, like, people who are brilliant but are also decent human beings that are very team-oriented. Because all big things done in the world are done by teams. And it doesn't matter if you have, like, a genius engineer that is rowing against the ship. That doesn't help. So uh, so I think getting a group of very smart people, but getting them to work together uh, well was very important for us, especially since we crossed so many disciplines to make the technology work. Uh, again, quite unlike software engineering, we have so many different domains of very different expertise that needed to come together. But like one thing I'm proud of like for our team, right? if you give someone like some kind of pat on the back of, hey, like this was some great result, like great progress. Thanks for shipping that. Like the default reaction of our team is like, they'll be like, no, 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 no. Like actually like it wasn't, it wasn't just me. It wasn't me. Like really like you should give the credit to like A or B or C on the team. That's sort of our culture. And I think some of that was like us, a little bit of us was us like encouraging it, but mostly it was just hiring, hiring like good people who are intrinsically like team and outcome motivated and not egotistical. So what, what have you learned around culture, Tony? In the innovation culture, uh, 
so many things, but meritocracy is easier said than done. You have to be very intentional about it. Meritocracy means the best idea should win regardless of hierarchy, right? But the issue is that you will have hierarchy in a company. You do you do need to see or you need some decision framework at some point, some person makes a call. You need to be very intentional about how you break down the barriers ahead so that everybody feels like they're like Camelot's round table, right? The intern can shut down the idea from the CEO, right? Based on data and logic. But after that debate's been had, then one person does make the call and we all march in the same direction. It's what Amazon calls disagree and commit. So that is very important. But beforehand, how you actually get people to feel comfortable with speaking up sometimes, uh, putting country opinions to their to people to their managers and company. That's something you have to be very intentional about. There's no time for us to cover all the things we do in our company, but like there's so many things you have to do to break down that intrinsic part dynamic so people feel comfortable speaking up with their ideas. Uh, and then I think I'll just one last thing. Fail well is one of our official company values, and it's sort of crazy to do failure in uh, in, in your company values, but. If you want to be innovative, you absolutely need to have an environment with psychological safety so people are willing to take risks. Like having an environment where uh, people can fail is not only like, it's like actively counterproductive. But of course, right, you, you also don't want low performers that just consistently screw up. So how do you actually encourage the right kind of risk taking and to reward failure even when uh, you want to reward failure when it's the right kind of risk taking? And it just didn't work out. But of course, you do actually need to hold people to standards of, well, if it was a dumb risk or it just executed poorly, then you do have to have carrots and sticks. That nuance is very hard and you need to get that right if you want to be very innovative. Wow. Now, let me ask you this. Imagine I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time. I bring you back to that moment where you were perhaps at the you know incubator, the deep tech incubator. And, and let's say I had, I, I give you the opportunity here of going back in time and whispering to your younger self one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now, Tony? Iterate faster. And <laughs> I would like to turn back the time machine and to my college days and also say, don't skip all your humanities classes. Communications <laughs> is very important. I had to oh, learn yeah. the hard way, man. I had, I had a lot of time to turn from. Uh, but you, you know, jokes like a, a social engineer is the one that looks at your shoes when they talk to you and not their own shoes. Uh, I, I had to like do some mental flips. But so two things, right? Iterate quickly. Frankly, the first the first technology vision with all the details and your first go to market strategy are going to be wrong. It was wrong for us. Not like completely wrong, but you're gonna you're gonna have to iterate. And the speed of iteration is critical in a startup. I'm absolutely convinced. You need to think a lot about how how, you, how do you just learn quickly, uh, be more mentally flexible, and like be able to say, okay, now's the time to switch switch a bit of gears and uh, and try something new. Uh, second piece to that communication piece, right? Again, all big things in the world are done by teams, and it's not just your team within the company. You need to convince investors, your customers, on on this new vision that has never existed before, and it's about winning hearts and minds to roll in the same direction. I mean, I think that that's incredibly profound and I'm sure that so many people that are listening, you know, are going to be, you know, really touched by everything that you've shared here with us, Tony. I guess for 
those that are listening now and that you know would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, I think our website has some reach out form, but my email is tony.pan at modernhydrogen.com. And I've given up, like there's, most of my emails are spam anyways, but uh, I, I do look, I do look very carefully at my email. It's a religion. Uh, so that's the way to reach out to, to me. Uh, but yeah, uh, a lot of people have helped me along the journey. Uh, and so I'm very happy to pass it forward. You see enough there and, and, and. And what a what an amazing interview and that I've had the pleasure here, you know, to enjoy. And I'm sure that our listeners, you know, have really, you know, and I'm sure that they are incredibly inspired by everything that you shared. Tony, thank you so much for really taking the time and being here with us. It has been an honor to have you with us on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.